Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, WBGO's John Kalish has the story of a New Jersey man convicted of murder who was just released from prison after serving more than 30 years. My main motivation right now is to try to curtail the glamorization with the culture of street crime whether it's through music, videos, or any of that nonsense. I'll chat with Grammy Award-winning singer Paula Cole about the upcoming NJ Pack tribute concert for Frank Sinatra and Peggy Lee. It, well, really, it was her voice. I think it's sensual, it's, it's breathy, and yet there's power in it. And film critic Harlan Jacobson picks his best from Sundance. The best doc I saw by far is Soundtrack to a Coup d'etat a dizzying two-and-a-half-hour array of newsreel and archival footage surrounding the rise in 1961 assassination of Patrice Lumumba. All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. In late December, a 54-year-old New Jersey African-American man who was convicted of murder was released from prison after serving more than 30 years. A key factor in the decision to free him was a determination that the original sentence did not take into account how young he was when the crime was committed. WBGO's John Kalish reports. Razulu Ukawabutu was 19 at the time of the murder. He and two other young men had abducted and robbed an Atlantic City man named Jesse Rice. This was in December 1988. Ukawabutu shot Rice seven times in the head with a 22 caliber handgun. After his conviction, Ukawabutu was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole until he had served 35 years. That's something I will have to live with the rest of my life. A son was taken away from his mother and father. A son was taken away from his own son. A son was taken away from his brothers. So that's something a person can never repay. Efforts to reach the family of the murder victim, Jesse Rice, were unsuccessful. During the 34 years he was incarcerated, Ukawabutu worked as a paralegal and helped to exonerate two of his fellow prisoners. He earned a B.A. in criminal justice from Rutgers while he was inside and was working towards a master's degree in theology. The court said, I see all this rehabilitation. You shouldn't be facing death behind bars. Alicia Hubbard is the assistant deputy public defender for Atlantic County. She's part of the Lifers Group Parole Project in the public defender's office. Hubbard says that after Ukawabutu served many years in prison, the court decided his age at the time of the murder should have been considered as a factor in his sentence. As a result, the court reduced his sentence from life to 45 years with the possibility of parole after serving 30 years. Our state legislature added a mitigating factor just a few years ago, mitigating factor 14, and it's that the court should consider that someone was under 26 at the time of the crime. Why? Because we know now what the brain science says about them not being as mature, about how younger people are more impetuous and don't do forward thinking in the same way that full-grown adults would, that they don't anticipate consequences in the same way. 
Hubbard says a 32-minute video produced by public defender investigators Rebecca Gonzalez and Denise Harvey helped convince the court that Razulu Ukawabutu should be set free. The video included interviews with friends, family, exonerated prisoners, and three college professors who worked with Ukawabutu while he was in prison. Here's Jennifer First, a professor of sociology and criminal justice, at William Patterson University. The trust that other incarcerated men put in Razulu might be the most telling thing about his character, that he can be trusted and works on behalf of others, even in his situation. Facing life incarceration with no guarantee of release, he's helping others. He's spending time doing good that he may not get any accolades for or recognition for. And so it really tells you who he is as a human being. While he was incarcerated at Trenton State Prison, Ukawabutu noticed that there were a lot of fathers and sons imprisoned at the same time and was struck that some sons were proud of doing time with their fathers. Ukawabutu's sons and daughter visited him in prison. He's now a grandfather. Even though he wasn't raising them on a day-to-day basis, Ukawabutu tried to make sure that his kids didn't follow in his footsteps. And he sees that as his occupational mission going forward. My main motivation right now is to try to curtail the glamorization with the culture of street crime, whether it's through music, videos, or any of that nonsense trying to de-glamorize it and give the kids a better understanding of consequences because that's one of the things I wish I could have had coming up is to actually know the full extent of consequences. That's one of the things that I've chosen to do is live my life in service to helping younger kids that grew up like me and made the same mistakes that I made without any resources or opportunities to do better. Razulu Kawabutu is currently living in New Brunswick with friends. He's planning to enroll in Rutgers for a graduate degree in media or public policy. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish. John Kalish's report is part of WBGO's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion feature series, made possible in part by a grant from the Fund for New Jersey. Never know how much I love you Never know how much I care When you put your arms around me I get a fever that's so hard to bear You give me fever When you kiss me, fever When you hold me tight Fever In the morning A fever all through the night NJ Pack is celebrating the close friendship of legendary singers Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra. On February 8th, it's a one-night-only event that features Christian McBride as musical director and a host of amazing performers, including our guest today, Grammy Award-winning singer, songwriter, producer, and educator, Paula Cole. Paula, great to see you. Great to see you. Frank Sinatra, Peggy Lee, and friends, the celebration and the lineup of all-star vocalists includes yourself, Alan Black, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Betty Lavette, Rachel Price, Brian Stokes Mitchell, and of course Christian McBride's big band and strings. 
It sounds like it's going to be an incredible event. Why did you want to be a part of it? Oh, they asked me early on and I immediately said yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, just honoring Peggy Lee, that's important. I don't hear of that too much, honoring her. And that's, I mean, she's been with me in my life since I was a, in college. I was singing Black Coffee at like at the airport, Boston Logan Airport Hilton Lounge, you know, <laughs> on my jazz gigs on Thursday nights. And um, I, I've immediately asked if I could sing Black Coffee, but that was already taken. I'm feeling mighty lonesome, haven't slept a wink. I walk the floor and watch the door, and in between I drink Black Coffee. So I loved the opportunity to honor her and her work. And then, of course, I'm accompanied by Christian McBride, who's one of the most beautiful people and bass players on the planet. And then I heard that um, I think we're going to be utilizing some of the original arrangements from the Peggy Lee estate. So that's exciting. I can't wait to hear some of these songs you know, performed classically like that with those arrangements. And I mean, the singers are fantastic. I'm in such fantastic company. I think it's going to be so much fun. For those who are familiar with the incredible Peggy Lee songs, Fever, it's all that there is, it's a good day, the songs that you've, you've already talked about. What is it about Peggy Lee that drew you to either listening to her or her <laughs> as a person? It, well, really, it was her voice. I think it's sensual. It's, it's breathy, and yet there's power in it. And it's always understated. Well, again, to Black Coffee, but Fever and even songs she wrote for Lady and the Tramp, like La La Lou. I mean, they are sparsely instrumentated, and it showcases her vocal so beautifully. Her vocal is like the entree, and there's very little clutter. Yes, she sings big band swing arrangements that are incredible, too, and we'll do some of them. We'll do a lot of those on February 8th. However... I think I, I understand. I'd like to do more research to learn, but I think it was her idea for the arrangement for Fever, what I've heard. I don't know if you know, um, which would make sense. I mean, if you have a voice like that, she can't necessarily improvise virtuosically like some of her peers did, and she doesn't have a big range, but that tone in the middle of her range is so exquisite it's like this velvety fine wine. It's so sensuous, just the tone of her voice. It's so simple. So you don't want to clutter it. And she was wise not to do so. She allowed her voice to be the entree and for the arrangement to be simple. And you just fall into the lyric. And I loved her for that, for that very wise, I guess that was a production decision and arrangement decision really on her part. You have to know that she was spectacular because Frank Sinatra didn't, associate with those who weren't <laughs> he always <laughs> made he, he he was pretty gregarious and made sure that if he was going to share the stage whether working or singing together or doing an orchestra with her so you know that he respected her as well mm, you know i don't know so very much about that friendship i'd love to learn more or, or even frank i don't know so very much about him um and i hope i get to learn more and more through being involved in this wonderful show. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear all of these, you know, Betty Levette, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Rachel Price, all of everybody sing 
these songs. I think it's going to be so fun. Paula Cole began in a household where music was everywhere. Her dad <laughs> could play all kinds of instruments, and but he was a biology professor, which is which is kind of strange. But your your sister played uh, instruments, so it was a very musical household, an artsy household. Your mother into <laughs> art. So when you think about where you've come from, being the best new artist, the Grammy Award, and you know many years ago to all the wonderful songs that you sing now that I think when you were younger, you appreciated, but not as much as you do now. Is that correct? Uh, it's hard to say because I, first of all, I had a bit of a, a, a niche way of growing up in that I grew up at the tip of an island on Cape Ann on the North shore of Massachusetts. I grew up in Rockport. We didn't even hardly get the FM signal in very well. So I was musically isolated and grew up really with my family making music. As you said, my dad played a myriad of instruments and he would move between like playing Duke Ellington on the piano to playing folk songs on the guitar. And yet he also played like pickup gigs with a polka band when we lived in Connecticut. So, um, but he had beautiful feel and ears and it made me realize like genre, li genre lines are blurred and should be blurred. I really believe in the cross-pollinization of music. That's the way it grows. You know, people sharing music. It's an oral tradition. Well, if you see the YouTube, uh, on YouTube, uh, a special that Paula Cole did about her uh, album, American Quilt, you will find out a lot about the influences and the people that, that she uh, has cared about through the years. Bessie Smith and Louis Armstrong. So... Yes, it has been. It has been a, a part of you. I see trees of green, red roses too. I see them bloom for me and for you. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. When do you? think that you knew that standards because I, I i saw an old interview from you when when you were the hottest singer on the planet and you said oh those those songs that i had to sing in the high school musicals i i don't i don't want to sing those songs i don't want to sing i i want to sing my own songs and you talked about it when do you think standards became important to you i i stopped wanting to sing them mostly because of the lyrics Never the melody. And the melodies are exquisite. And the chord changes below are so much more sophisticated. It's a different uh, era of music making. I suppose, I mean, Burt Bacharach touched upon that a bit. But there are very few composers in modern pop that really harken back to that melody shape. Or even using chromatic motion in a, in a melody. It's, it's so unique to the popular music of the earlier part of the 20th century and that then got named jazz somehow, whatever jazz means, it's an etymological mystery that, right? But um, I, I, it wasn't the melodies. I'm always in love with the melodies and it's always a part of me. However, the lyrics were the thing um, that, that triggered me, I guess, because, you know, they were really largely written by men. It was very hard to find songs written by women, maybe Anne Rennell for Willow Weep for Me. And Billie Holiday wrote a few songs, Bless Her Heart. Like, But I, I had very little to find that I felt really reflected 
me. So on the on my gigs, I would like kind of sneak and I'd change lyrics. I would just sing different lyrics to the ones that I found offensive. Or I started writing and expressing my truths that way. And especially my early work, you could really hear the jazz influences more. And I was asked to sign to GRP Records, which was more of a jazz label at the time. And I just didn't want to be pigeonholed. So I said no to that deal. I was still in college, you know. And I went back to waitressing for a few years until I signed with a different label. And that led me to a major. And so it was, I was kind of allowed to have a little more creative freedom in combining my influences. It's always been a tricky thing. Like, how do you stay authentic to yourself? Yeah. And you have also done that by producing. You're back to producing, you know, all of the, the songs on your 11th studio album, though, that uh, back when you were uh, winning the uh, Best New Artist, the Grammy, you were also nominated, the first woman ever to be nominated for producer of the year. So you were getting your message out. You wanted control of your music. That was evident. Yes, thanks for mentioning it. Um, and I didn't know I was like cracking any ceiling. I didn't know anything about who had been nominated for what. In fact, I confess I never even watched the Grammys before I was on it. You know, I didn't grow up with much television and I was just so busy working through my, you know, younger adult life that I didn't have the time to sit down and watch the Grammys. So I didn't know. I just knew that I was like trying to advocate for what I felt was right for my musical expression. And I've, I realized, well, if I just don't have a middleman that's a producer, I could just communicate directly and make the decisions directly. And, and it, it was really hard. It was really hard to be taken seriously. And then I realized later when I was nominated for that Grammy, why? Because it just wasn't done very often. Um, usually young women were produced by a, a senior male and they helped liaison the artist to the record company. But it, it was an old fashioned way of doing it. And I'm proud that I self-advocated, you know, sometimes it's hard, but you have to speak up for your yourself. You know, we all have to do that. Oh, I know you sure you're also very proud that you were one of the early performers of the Lilith Fair. I mean, what a difference that made in music when it came to female performers and the power of the lyrics and the expression. Do you agree with that? What a wonderful thing that was. Thanks for mentioning Lilith Fair. Um, really proud to have been part of its inception 
I was opening for Sarah McLaughlin in 1995 um, for her Fumbling Towards Ecstasy tour. And I had come out with my first album, Harbinger, um, in 94. So I was touring that and kind of formulating ideas for my next album. And the tour went really, really well. And as I was, you know, touring the States and before touring with Sarah, I was in, in a minivan and in a rental car driving all over the United States, showing up to mom and pop radio stations, setting up in coffee houses. I sang with Peter Gabriel in 93 and 94 as his, um, you know, as a vocalist on his Secret World Live tour. So I was gaining all kinds of interesting perspectives and um, it, it just became very clear that you know, radio programming, you rarely heard a woman back to back in a radio hour on certainly in pop rock. And uh, you, you rarely saw two women on a bill as well. Promoters just didn't want to put two women on a bill. They said it wouldn't sell. And uh, Sarah kindly asked me to open for her. And it went fantastically well. There's so much more to Paula Cole, but we're running out of time. If you want to Check out all her tour schedules and more information. You can go to paulacole.com to get more information about that. But celebrating Peggy Lee, Frank Sinatra, and Friends features the lineup that includes the all-star vocalist, Paula Cole, Hello Black, Dee Dee Bridgewater, Betty Levette, Rachel Price, and Brian Stokes Mitchell from Broadway fame, and the Christian McBride Big Band and Strings. It'll be quite an event, February 8th. 7.30 at NJPAC. You will want to be there. What a pleasure to speak Likewise, with Paula Cole. Oh, thank you so much. And I loved your questions. And thank you for listening to me all these years. Thank you. You can see my entire interview with Paula Cole on the WBGO Facebook page. I'm running away from all the noise To the with low and plaintive voice To the river Like Narcissus To see my reflection Green eyes crying Green eyes crying Crying mercy Reports from the Sundance front are that the film festival returned to being a little more lively this year. I'd say our film critic Harlan Jacobson is just back, but he parachuted in remotely from the greater New York, New Jersey Metroplex to take the pulse of a festival that kicks off the acquisition year for American film companies scouting for films to bring to theaters and streamers. 40-year-old Jesse Eisenberg, who first came to Sundance in 2005 as part of the troubled Berkman family in Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale, returned this year with a film he wrote, directed, and acted in, A Real Pain, a title which takes on double meanings to describe the Holocaust tour of his immigrant grandmother's Poland that his character David Kaplan takes with his cousin Benji Kaplan, played by Kieran Culkin. Just in case... You doubted the only difference between Culkin's Benji Kaplan and his Roman Roy in succession is the money. He had a lot of it in one, none in this one. The title, A Real Pain, does at least double duty describing the 20th century legacy to world Jewry 
and the more vernacular assessment of Benji's personality, as in, he is one. And it's the project of the film to relate the global and personal hurts. Benji has a propensity to get up in everybody's grill, including the clueless English tour guide over the Disneyfication of the Holocaust tour. Lunch, water, with gas, uh, or something like that, in Benji's highly attuned eye for irony. By now, it's clear Culkin doesn't actually act. He just learned how to call a halt to everyone else's forward motion, apparently in the crib. You'd swear it was Roman Roy in that Bugs Bunny voice of his who insists in this film that the tour just take a beat to recognize the wickedness of the group taking a first-class train car to the Maidanic gas chamber in Lublin. There may be no good way to do the Holocaust. There's an old story that Walter Matthau told about getting in a fight with his wife, Carol, over her absolute last-minute sit-down refusal to leave the Krakow hotel room to go see Auschwitz, driving him to fume, Okay, okay, Carol, you ruined Auschwitz for me now. You happy? Benji is pretty sure first class is not how their relatives got to the Maidana camp on the itinerary. What's deep about this film, that plays so lightly as it proceeds to a final stop in front of their grandmother's old front door, is how differently Benji and David fit on the continuum where the offspring of Holocaust survivors live. Functional and determined to live and be well-liked like David? Overwhelmed by ghosts and existentially paralyzed like Benji at the sad failure that he can't shake of the world. I have known both. The best doc I saw by far is soundtrack to a coup d'etat, a dizzying two-and-a-half-hour array of newsreel and archival footage surrounding the rise in 1961 assassination of the first Prime Minister of the Democratic Republic of Congo, Patrice Lumumba, and the American civil rights, arts, and jazz community's radicalized anger that followed. Resulting outrage in the DR Congo, now Zaire, and America, is the text of the film by Belgian documentarian Johan Grimmenprey, who has interwoven original documentary TV news, witness interviews, and memoir with concert and studio riffs by black jazz artists like Louis Armstrong, who is so outraged by the U.S. government's deployment of him on a goodwill jazz tour to distract from our back-channel operations that he threatened to renounce his U.S. citizenship and move to Ghana. The film is what would pass for an astonishing cavalcade at a big-name jazz Lollapalooza. Satchmo, Dizzy Gillespie, Duke Ellington, Nina Simone, Miriam Makiba, Quincy Jones, Miles Davis, Mingus, Ella, Monk, and Abby Lincoln and Max Roach, with a riff from his The Drum Also Waltzes. But the film is not just about the murder of Lumumba, barely into its first term as prime minister, but how it galvanized the lot of them, plus the world, against the naked assertion of Belgian colonialism 
and American foreign policy and military objectives in Africa, particularly the acquisition of weapons-grade uranium available in the Congo. Lumumba's murder further inflamed the already smoking civil rights rebellion in the U.S. The film repackages footage, a lot of it from fresh angles to me, of key 50s Cold War names on the international front, Khrushchev and his shoe at the U.N., making not a threat to bury the U.S., the film says, but to bury colonialism. Ike, U.N. Secretary General Dag Hammarskjöld, U.S. Ambassador Adlai Stevenson, CIA Chief Alan Dulles, Castro, Nehru, Nasser, Sukarno, Zhou Enlai, Malcolm X, Kasavubu, Joseph Mobutu, Kwame Nkrumah, the whole parade of chicanery, politicians, and protest. Grimman Prey's visual interplay of jazz cuts and political narrative builds toward jazz singer Abby Lincoln and drummer great Max Roach in the wake of Lumumba's murder, amassing 60 gallery tickets from the Cuban delegation to disrupt the UN General Assembly. The ambitious, accomplished Grimman Prey weaves in footage of the We Insist on Freedom suite with Roach backstopping Lincoln's harrowing cry to pull down the curtain. I didn't see enough at Sundance 2024. But after soundtrack to a coup d'etat, there was no left air to breathe anyway. And I'm Harlan Jacobson. Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.